0: Pray with me. God, we come here this morning, and that's really what we want to declare together, that you are better. You're more satisfying. You actually deliver on what you promise, and you are very good to us. You are better than any other thing or any other person we can set our hope on. And so we praise you. Be with us now as we open your word. Would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. 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 Peter shuts the door. The latch falls heavy. And they're finally alone. Just Jesus and 12 very confused men. The crowd outside begins to disperse. The murmur of the argument dissipates. The tension, hardly resolved, moves out into the streets and alleys of Capernaum. At least the hard part is over. They come to Peter's house. They've been here before, many times, actually, Peter's house. The disciples rest their hands on a familiar table. They ease their backs into familiar chairs. They see the familiar look in their master's eyes. Despite their familiarity, or maybe because of it, they are characteristically clueless as to why they are there. Moments ago, they stood next to Jesus as he chastised a group of Pharisees, spiritual know-it-alls. They nodded their heads in agreement, only about half a sentence behind understanding what he was really saying. Now inside, one of them asks Jesus, Jesus, was all that really necessary? I mean, everything you just told those guys out there. Wasn't that a little over the top, Jesus? Couldn't you... uh, uh, Jesus must have looked exasperated because he's used to telling these guys things more than once. They want so desperately to follow him, but they just don't get it. You ever been there? When everybody else around you seems to get something, but for some reason you're missing the point. I've been there. Some of you guys have heard me tell this story, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, a couple of months ago, Mandy and I and our kids were packed in our minivan, and we were headed eastbound on I-80 from Chicago to here. All right? Now, if you know you're, you're traveling eastbound on I-80 with kids in a minivan, there's one thing that is crucially important, rest stops. <laughs> and I just want to go on the record of saying that Indiana rest stops are terrible, all right, I can't wait till I get to the Ohio line because they're like, yes, Ohio rest stops. There's something about it. I know this is trivial and stupid. Just track with me. So here I am. I'm in an Indiana rest stop, okay? And uh, the kids have already done their thing and I'm at the sink and I'm washing my hands, okay? So I go up under the sensor and I do this, you know? Tri- <laughs> nothing. I'm like, all right. So I did what most of you would do. I take a step to the right, you know, and then I do it to the other. I'm like, nothing. I'm gonna curse you, Indiana rest stops, doesn't work. Then something amazing happens. A guy comes up next to me, and he turns on the nozzle. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's not one of these. It's, oh, okay. Sometimes it's the basic stuff that we miss, right? We miss the basic stuff. Well, Jesus has something incredibly crucial to tell his disciples, a really basic thing. Something that's hard to hear, that up till now they just haven't gotten it. If you've been with us these past couple of weeks through, through Mark, we've seen a side of Jesus that we often don't talk about. We've seen his candor, which I really love. He doesn't pull punches, he doesn't hold back, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't tell these people what they want to hear, he tells them what they need to hear, however uncomfortable it might be. Last week, Ryan led us through Mark 7, 9 through 13, and we concluded that that no matter how inconvenient it sounds, truth matters. Truth matters. Well, I'm going to pick up right where he left off, so go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. Go ahead and look in verse 14. Mark 7, verse 14, the truth that inflamed the Pharisees concerned the crowd and confused the disciples was simply this. Jesus did not come to make us good people. He came to make us new people. And there is a profound difference. Mark 7, 14. The scene has changed somewhat. We've moved from a public square to a smaller gathering. The Pharisees have left, probably in a rage. The crowd has has hung back a bit, a smaller group. Jesus' tone shifts from a chastising teacher to a loving friend. Take a look in verse 14 with me. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. He called the people to him again and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Then when he said, or when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, I think there's a sigh in there. He said to them, Then are you also not without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? I'll leave you to conclude what he's talking about there. We've all had freshman biology. We get that. And thus he declares all foods clean. Verse 20, he said it again. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Mark 7, the whole chapter, finds Jesus in this fantastically tense discourse with a group called the Pharisees. These are a group of teachers who were put off by the idea that Jesus' disciples didn't follow all the rules. At least not the rigid rule code that they had. So here's what the Pharisees did. They were spiritual perfectionists. I hate these kind of things, right? They were spiritual perfectionists. They kept all the rules. And then they made up rules to make sure they didn't break those rules. And then they made up rules to make sure they didn't break those rules. The trouble was, over time, these traditions, or these, we call them fence laws, because they were fences to keep us out, fences calcified into traditions to the point where God's people were not able to understand his heart because all they heard their entire life was rules, 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 rules. Rules. And Jesus hates that, because God's grace had become like this forgotten old path in an overgrown, neglected forest, and God's people couldn't get home. And so Jesus, last week and the week before, what we read is Jesus just lays into him. Take a look at verse 6, so scooch up a little bit. He says this, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And then skip down to verse 13. This is huge. Verse 13. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now Jesus' point through this whole last little discussion with the Pharisees is that nothing out here makes you holy or unholy. Nothing out here, nothing external, can really do anything to you. You can never earn favor with God by doing anything. You can never jump high enough. You can never go to church often enough. You can't raise your kids perfectly enough. You can't manicure your life enough to impress God. Because, verse 14, this is where he brings it back. He says, hear me all of you and understand There's nothing outside of a person that by going in to him can defile him. But the things that come out of him are what defile him. That's an indictment on our souls. And it hangs heavy. In the Old Testament, God gave his people laws. Now, we have the Ten Commandments. Most of us have heard of those or know those. But in addition to that, there were 613 laws that God gave his people. 613 of them and it was everything from like how to how to cook a meal right what kind of animal to touch what to wear what what how not to cook how to sell a cart to your neighbor like all of these rules 613 of them the only trouble was as you might imagine with 613 it's only a matter of time before we slip up it's impossible to keep all those laws And so what God designed is he designed a system to atone for the people's sin. He said once a year at Passover, you can sacrifice a perfect, innocent, spotless lamb, and that will cover over the people's sins. It's a great little precursor to the Messiah that would eventually come. And so the years wore on. God's people made their sacrifices, they lived under their laws, and they looked forward to the one day when Messiah would come and be their once and for all innocent, spotless lamb. And then in steps Jesus. I love that. And he starts to talk about law, and he starts to talk about what, what, what defilement is or what sin is, and then he talks about what does it mean to be, to be dirty, and what does it mean to be clean. And he says all of this ritual stuff out here, that's not the point. The point is you've got a deeper issue. This is a revolutionary talk from Jesus. Keep in mind the cultural air that these words floated in. These were first century, law abiding, ritual keeping, focused Jews. And so their deal was we've got to keep the law or we make sacrifices and Jesus says that's not the point and their jaws would have dropped. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? that's going against centuries of teaching where he says nothing outside can make us unclean. Everything outside can make us unclean. You touch an animal in the wrong way, unclean. You eat pork, wrong, unclean. Wash your hands the wrong way before Passover, unclean. Sell a cart to your neighbor without the right paperwork, you're unclean. All of those things put distance between you and God. So why is Jesus saying this? Is Jesus saying that God's been wrong? That's an important question to ask because it's why the Pharisees wanted them dead. No, of course he's not saying that God's wrong. In a move of masterful teaching that ultimately sets the table for a larger discussion later, Jesus rewinds the tape all the way back to the beginning of God's intention behind the law, God's intention for this, these rules in his people's life to remind us of our sin, to remind us that we can't make it to God on our own. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, you and I have a sin problem, bad news. Just knuckling down and trying our best isn't gonna make it. Or we've got like 59 or 51% good, 49% bad, and so God lets me into heaven. Doesn't work like that. Sooner or later, we're going to fall into sin and God can't be around it and we need something bigger than just another dead lamb. By turning their attention inwards, Jesus is teeing up the idea that there is a deeper issue at play. They don't need to become good people. They need to become new people. When I was eight, my parents got a brand new refrigerator. They traded in their Avocado green, mid-70s, Incredible Hulk. You're laughing because some of you have this one. Or you had it, hopefully. If it's still running, awesome. Doubt it. They traded in their, this avocado green refrigerator for a brand new one. And because I am an eight-year-old boy with an imagination, I get to keep the box. Now, if you're an eight-year-old boy, there is nothing that you can't do with a refrigerator box. Like secret base, fort, Whatever. In my case, because I'm a Calvin and Hobbes fan, yes, I built a transmogrifier. <laughs> yes? Transmogrifiers. All right, now if you don't know what a transmogrifier is, that's okay. You're, it just means you're not a nerd like the rest of us. It's okay. Here's what a transmogrifier is it is always made out of an overturned cardboard box. Usually on the front is a fixed a dial with a brass brad. And on the front, it's got different options you can turn the dial to. Okay? So I will turn it to dog or cat or dinosaur or whatever. And I will emerge later as a creature either bent on blessing my parents with joy and companionship or abject destruction depending upon my eight-year-old mood at the moment. And so there I am snarling, because I have turned into a fearsome, ferocious Brandon Osaurus. I've been to therapy. We're all okay. This has been cleared up. I'm aware of the underlying issues. And so, but nobody gets it. Nobody understands, so my parents will look at me and humor me. My two-year-old brother will look at me oddly, like, what is this happening? Nobody gets that I have transformed, right? No, I haven't. It's a really silly picture, but I think it's a great picture of how most Christians view discipleship. If we can modify our behavior enough, at least in the right way, when I'm around the right people... Maybe I'll be all right. Take a look at verse 17. When he had entered the house, he left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Sigh, then are you also not without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is then expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. So he hits it again. Food is not the problem. I am the problem. And I'm not just part of the problem, I am the problem. Because I've got a sin issue. And until that sin issue is dealt with, nothing in my life or nothing around my life is going to make any sense at all. Now we might sit back at this point and kind of cross our arms a little bit, furrow our brows, And say, well, this doesn't sound very happy, Jesus. What happened to Jesus wants me for a sunbeam? What happened to climb, climb up sunshine mountain, heavenly breezes blow? What is this, Jesus? This is horrible news. And if that's your reaction to depravity, yes, you're dead on. This is horrible news. While the whole span of the gospel is a sweet symphony, the first act is a dark funeral dirge centered on me. The gospel isn't meant to make me happy, at least not at first. It's meant to make me holy, and there is a difference. So when I start out by saying, I've got a sin issue, this is not happy news, but it's the best news because it turns the issue inward where I need a transformation. So even as though the gospel starts out as this dark, serious lament, it's me, it's me. It sets the stage for this lofty antiphonal chorus of grace that's going to follow. But it's got to start here first. Because unless I get the idea that from the crown of my head to the sole of my feet, I am infected with sin, that all of my motives are self-serving, that I am naturally inclined to orient all of my relationships around what suits me, that I am the main character in my story. We are all functional narcissists, right? That's what sin is. Unless I get that, I'll crawl out from underneath my cardboard box, acting the way that I should, without ever being truly converted. And that is scary. I'll build a fake an ultimately unsatisfying life that measures my standing with God based on my external behavior and not on my inward transformation. And that is scary. Take a look in verse 20. Now he's going to get specific on us. Verse 20 and he said, "What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, if you're like me, you read that list of 13 words, and your first response is like a running checkoff list. Okay? So you're doing this thing, you're like, okay, Maybe, kinda, nope, 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 well, maybe, sometimes, not since college, not since last week, depends on how you define it, and, and like, that's kind of what we do, so why do we do that? Humble suggestion, partial confession, we do that because we're falling into the same trap that the Pharisees created. I'll be honest, I do that, I go through that checklist, and I'm tempted to measure my life on behavior modification because I am really seeking to defend my flesh against anything that would put me in an uncomfortable position against my well-groomed facade. And you're probably the same way. And so Jesus, not holding back, he just goes, here's the problem, let me, let me make sure we're clear. Like rats in the basement of my heart, turning on the lights, doesn't make them go there. It just proves that they're there anyway and lets me know i got to deal with it. Jesus Jesus rattles off this list not so we can be self-justified in our performance, but so that we can hear our just accusation from the same one who will eventually grant us our pardon. Because you and I are guilty of every one of those things. Adultery? Really? Well... Jesus raised the bar, right, in the New Testament where he said, if you look at someone lustfully, you've got that problem in your heart. Murder? Come on. Well, Jesus said, you know what, if you hate your brother or your sister, that's in your heart. But what's incredible in this text, Jesus brilliantly leaves the problem on the table, like literally, after verse 23, what happens? Just look. After verse 23, if you've, got, if you've got a Bible, look at verse 24. He just gets up and leaves. Like he gets up, heads out the door, and heads to the next town. The whole discussion probably lasted like five minutes. And can't you see the disciples sitting there scratching their heads, you know, going, well, if it's not food, it's the problem, okay? It's not the way I wash my hands, Okay. Then where'd he go? Oh, where's the good news? Come on, Jesus, where'd you go? And Jesus heads out the door. Well, the good news is coming. Tradition can't fix my problem because tradition can't fix my heart. So if I've got a heart problem, what do I need? What a new what? I need a new heart. I need transformed. I don't need behavior modification. I don't need to behave. I need a new heart. So signs of a transformed heart. I want to give you four of them. And then we'll move on to to where we're actually going to do something with this. Because this is a gloomy cloud. Here's the first sign of a transformed heart. Holy affections. Holy affections. Here's what I mean. Mandy and I live with three wonderful, beautiful inspiring sinners. (laughs) And I love them. And yes, I love them all equally, although, you know, our daughter, she's got a little special... I won't go there. Anyway, that's the idea. We live with horrible sinners, and they're parented by horrible sinners. My kids can look over my shoulder, learn my iPhone password, not mention it, and then later, when they've downloaded an app and I find it on my home screen, they look at me and say... I don't know how it got there. Can I play it? (laughs) Bold-faced lie. And they're only six. What's this going to be like when they're 13? Like, you know how to pray for us. Okay. In the face of that reality, we are left with a choice as parents. I can concentrate all of my energy on modifying their behavior, getting them to do the right things. I can put all of my chips there. Or... I can start to incorporate holy affections, getting them to want and to love the right things. Do you see the difference? Most of us in our lives, it was this, all about behavior modification, do, 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 or don't, don't, don't. And over here, we were never taught how to love the things of Christ. That's what I want. It's a hybrid between the two. You can't give this one up, I know that. But you've got to bring this in. Jesus didn't die so that you could behave. Jesus died so that you could have a new heart because behaving doesn't last, only for a season. Does anybody know what they said in the 18th century? Like when when somebody was introduced to Jesus and they gave their life to Jesus, now we say like, oh, they got saved or something like that. In the 18th century, what they said was, he's been seized by the power of a great affection. I love that. Great words, because we are deeply affective beings, right? I do what I love, and I talk about what I love. And until my love is transformed, I'm going to be stuck in that old man under the transmogrifier box. I'll behave differently, but that's not what satisfies, is it? The transformative power of the gospel will be shown in holy affections. Here's the second one. second mark and a second sign of a transformed heart is this. A deepened capacity for joy. A deepened capacity for joy. Here's a statement that sounds almost too stupid to be true. Now you're leaning in. All of those sins, like those sins listed in verse 21 and 22, that list, those are the fruit of a life that is profoundly bored. That's not a thrill-seeking life. That's a bored life. Because when your hands are busy with the work of the kingdom, you don't have time to do any of that stuff. Because you're doing other stuff that matters and that actually satisfies you. When I think about, for me anyway, the spectacular ways that I sinned before I gave my life wholly to Jesus, not one of them satisfied. It's like eating a pretzel when I was thirsty. Not one of them did anything for you. And it's the same thing for you. Because sin is not designed to satisfy Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. Oh, man, I love this quote. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's us. Before Christ. No joy thinking we've got it made. The biggest problem with a life spent on behavior modification is it lowers my bar for joy. Think of David on the porch, King David. You guys, some of you heard me tell this story before. You know this story, right? King David, everybody in the kingdom wanted to be King David. The man of all men, leading God's people, man after God's own heart. Everything is going great. He's in the prime of his life. Victory after victory after victory. Kingdom is growing. Everybody wants to be him. And when all of his men are out fighting, where's David? He's at home on the porch, and who's he watching? He's looking across the street, and he sees Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, and he's bored, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he says, for one second, I'm just gonna gonna go over here. When we're bored... (laughs) We take our eyes off of Jesus and we miss our joy. But then what's Jesus saying? John 10, he says, I have come not that you just have life, but what, that you have it to the full or abundantly. That's it. That's that deepened capacity for joy. Third mark of a transformed heart. Third sign is empathy toward the hurting. Empathy toward the hurting. When outward signs of our holiness are the primary measurement of our standing with God, our spiritual life has a cap, because I'll get too busy washing my own hands to extend them in love to the people who need it. That's what in in, uh, in Luke chapter seven, Jesus has a similar encounter with another Pharisee named Simon. Okay, you guys know this story, maybe. Simon is having dinner. He wants to have this Rabbi called Jesus over for dinner. Before the meal is served, in comes this woman, and she's a prostitute. Everybody knows it. And she takes oil and water, and with her hair, she wipes between Jesus' toes and in his, on his feet, and then she kisses his feet. This would have been a deeply offensive thing for Simon, but Jesus recognizes it for what it is. She's not trying to seduce him. She's acknowledging him as the Messiah. So Jesus, knowing what Simon is thinking, just, he comes out with it. He says, Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who loved little, or he who's been forgiven little, loves little. For years, I totally missed that. I missed the point of his words. Because what he used to think was like, oh, he's sitting there going, you know what, Simon, you've done a really good job with your life, man. You are squeaky clean. Like, annoyingly squeaky clean. And, and this, this woman, Simon, I... I get it. She's kind of yucky. Um, She's got a lot of sin. So I understand, Simon, if it's hard for you to love her, it's hard for me to love her too. That's not what he's saying at all, is it? What he says, just like these Pharisees before here in Mark 7, is he says the same thing. He's like, no, she's got a lot of sin because everybody's got a lot of sin. We are all steeped in sin, everybody's steeped in the filth of the world. We've all chosen our own way. We've all gone off the path that God wants for us. Here's the difference, Simon. She recognizes her sin, and you hide yours. Our ability to empathize with hurting people around us is related to our understanding of our own sinfulness. We cannot be thankful for forgiveness we don't feel like we need sitting back in our chairs, basking in our own self-righteousness. Fourth point. You know you have a transformed heart when you have a deep repentance towards sin and an awe at grace. We tend to think of repentance like foolishly inviting punishment, right? Like kids who color on the wall and then say, let's wait till they see before we say anything. We don't say anything first, wait till we get caught. For me, just a moment of transparency here. Repentance and confession only offend me when I tie my self-worth to my performance. When I fall into the trap of believing that I'm only loved by God when I perform for God. And that's a lie. It serves us well to become acquainted with our own sinfulness. Not so we can despair and get all dejected, but so that we can understand what grace is, That's the problem with these Pharisees. They have their lives so oriented toward outward perfection, this perfectly manicured lawn of a life with like hedges trimmed and edges square and mulch evenly distributed, that when they see sin in somebody else, they can't tolerate it. And so here we are, we're sinners. And it's like that song we sang a little bit ago. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Do you hear the honesty in that? That's what we need to be talking about. When we repent, we excavate the terrain of our souls and give grace new ground to build on. So what do we do with all this? This is all the bad news. What do we do with it? So I just got four quick points of application, and then we're gonna sing another song. First off, be honest with yourself. Please be honest with yourself. Most of us don't like to talk about sin because it's no fun, but can we just, again, I'll just kind of let our bellies out for a little bit Like, ollie ollie oxen free, okay? Everybody in this room is in the same spiritual state. We're all sinners, all right? So just let your belly out. It's okay. It's not okay that sin is there, but it's okay that you're among people who get you. Be honest about it. Stop hiding it. It doesn't doesn't do you any favors to just say, well, I'm doing really good. Stop it, that's boring. (laughs) Second point, get into community. Get into community. Here's again, for me, just being honest, it is really easy for me to be really self-justified when I'm sitting by myself. Sitting on my recliner with my remote in my hand because nobody can touch me, nobody can call me on my junk. I am never so aware of my pride though when I'm in community. And I'm never so blind to it when I'm completely alone. Because being completely alone, having a completely disconnected life, breeds pride. And when we start to breed pride in our life, it's a slippery slope and we start to unravel really, really quickly. So get into community. And that looks as simple as calling up somebody else in this room or somebody else you know and saying, hey, can we just get together once a week for coffee? I just need to talk. And I want to I start to explore what it would mean to grow. Get connected in an ABF or an MC. Don't go through life alone because you cannot grow in Christ in a vacuum. And we know that instinctively. But do something about it. I think, interesting though too, community also provides a place for restoration. I, we need to be honest about it. When we say get in community, community costs. So can we just admit that too? If you're gonna open up, that may cost because you may get hurt. And we'd be foolish to say, oh yeah, just go get in community and then your life is roses and sunshine. Mm -mm. It's harder, (laughs) but it's much, much better (laughs) because that's how we're designed to operate. That's how we're designed to grow. I say that as an introvert, okay? Like community sometimes freaks me out. But you gotta go. Okay, third one. Third point of application, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. I've been a Christian for five decades. Still, preach the gospel to yourself. Because at the end of the day, the only reason why I sin, a confessing believer in the sufficiency of Jesus, okay, the only reason why I sin is because I make a choice to fix my attention on something less magnificent than Jesus. And I need to be reminded because I am forgetful. That's why we sin. right? If you're a Christian, you don't have to sin anymore. right? You're not a slave to sin. The reason that we sin is we willfully choose to. Because in that moment, we believe that anger is better than compassion, that judgment is better than mercy, or that restoring our reputation is better than putting others first. That's why we sing Jesus is better all the time. It's to remind us of that because we're prone to forget it. I can only allow myself to choose my flesh when I have, through my forgetfulness, let the gospel fade into the periphery and all of my spiritual life shows up in Sunday morning pep rallies offset by regular Bible study attendance. And those are great. You gotta be here and you gotta be in the word. But that is not the finer fabric of a relationship with God. They lead you there. But there's a whole lot more to it. Fourth point. And with this one, we'll wrap up in just a second. Fourth point is worship well. Worship well. Worship, I mean, let's just again, I wanna say this because maybe you know it. Worship is that one spot in the week that is clearly not about me. And when it becomes about me, sin just starts to eat in. Worship's not about my preference. It's not about what I like or what I don't like. It's about this people of God gathering together to sing to him. There's a song we're gonna sing as we close, and I love it. I asked for it. It's my favorite at least right now. It's called All I Have is Christ. And so here's how it goes. So just listen to this, and tell me you don't see the gospel in this. It's so good. He says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought that I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state, and you led me to the cross, where I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And then the last one. Last verse he says, "Now Lord, I would be yours alone." and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. So Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. There's no excuse, by the way, for, for, for singing quietly on this one. Let's like rattle the rafters like if a light fell down or something. It might be appropriate. Sing from your heels on this one. This is a good one. I don't know what happened when Jesus got up from the table and left. I know the disciples followed him. And so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they finally got it. They finally understood that Jesus didn't come to make us good people. He came to make us new people. But this is hard for me. It's probably hard for you. Because I hate it when my flesh is called into question. It's a hard pill to swallow to say that I need Jesus but we absolutely do. Here's the good news. God stands more ready to forgive than you are to sin. He is pursuing you faster than you are running away from him, ever. There's no fracture he can't heal, no shame he can't undo, no sin too dark, no corner too shameful, no story he can't rewrite. Because Jesus came so that we wouldn't be just good people, but we would be new people. Let me pray for us. God, I want to say thank you for your grace. If it wasn't for that, we'd be hopeless. We're all running away from you at full speed. Some of us longer than others. But you're very, very good to us because you gave us Jesus. And even in our lives right now, we know there's stuff down deep that if it was found out about, we'd be embarrassed, we'd be ashamed, and we would weep. But your grace is bigger than that. And so we sit and we say, God, would you take our lives and use them in any way you want to? There's nothing else that matters. We're done keeping up the the hedge of our life. And we really just want to be known as people who are deeply in love with you In his name, everybody said, amen.